Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Mr Roman Quadvelic APM has served at nearly all ranks of Australian policing. Some of those include Assistant Commissioner Border Operations for the Australian Federal Police, Assistant Commissioner Airport Policing, Acting Deputy Commissioner Australian Federal Police, Australian Capital Territory Chief of Police and the first Commissioner of the newly formed Australian Border Force ABF in 2015. From policing the streets of Fortitude Valley as a young constable in Brisbane, Australia, to overseeing the ACT's policing capability as its chief of police, and then going on to lead the ABF's greatest challenge in Operation Sovereign Borders. Roman has experienced some of the greatest challenges policing has to offer at both operational levels and in senior executive positions. In this three-part episode of Protect and Serve, Roman and I sit down to discuss everything his career offered him from his experiences during the Fitzgerald Inquiry in Queensland to his close calls with outlaw motorcycle gangs working undercover in their clubrooms and the eventual policing of illegal immigration and Operation Sovereign Borders. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome back to another episode of Protect and Serve. I am incredibly honoured to be joined this evening uh, by a gentleman that I've known now for a few years. We spent some time together 
uh, on a panel that I invited him on to a little while ago with David Rudolph, a famous attorney from the US involving the staircase. And uh, we crossed paths during my time working on the island of Nauru during the period where the Australian government implemented Operation Sovereign Borders. So we'll talk a little bit about that podcast. But um, without further ado, I want to work, welcome Mr. Roman Quadlick to the podcast. Roman, uh, good evening and good morning. How are you? Good evening, Ali. Great to see you again. I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. So, you know, as I say on every one of my episodes, it's important to start at the beginning of every individual's policing career. And the first question I always like to ask is why policing? It's a uh... Excellent question, and I've been asked that many a time. Um, so I'll, I'll give you the uh, the truncated version. Uh, I was a young kid living in Holland because my parents are from Dutch ancestry, and I'd uh, like any good teenage boy uh, read a lot of comic books. And one I picked up in particular was um, a comic book around the uh, the Mounties, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and. Uh, this particular story uh, resonated with me because it was a, uh, a Mountie chasing his quarry for weeks on end across the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, it was a, to- a story about tenacity and uh, persistence and uh, toughing out the challenges. And I really resonated with that because I used to ride my bike to school in the snow. So, you know, I'd like to imagine I was that Mountie. Anyway, I wrote, um, I wrote as a 14-year-old to the RCMP commissioner asking if I could join, and he said, yeah, look, um, that's fine. Come back to me in a few years' time. We're you, <laughs> older. And as it turned out, my parents moved to Australia, so um, I uh, pursued my uh, interest in policing here. So joining the Queensland Police Service, which was the force that I worked with for quite a number of years when I moved over to, the UK, uh, moved over to Australia from the UK in 2002, but 1985, joining the Queensland Police Service, what was that experience like walking through the gates and beginning your training? Yeah, well, it was pretty exciting to me. I was a 21-year-old, you know, thought I knew it all. Um, <laughs> and I'd the previous week had received two letters simultaneously on the same day because I'd applied for a few jobs. I wasn't sure I was going to get into the cops. Um, so I'd applied for a few public service roles, sat some public service exams. And back in that day, when you did that, it was generic intake. You'd apply for the public service and you'd uh, take you know, pot luck in terms of what job you'd get. But in any event, I got two letters on the same day and I opened the first one. It was a, an offer from the Australian Taxation Office oh, wow. to come on board as a as a young officer at the princely sum of $12,000 per year salary. And I thought, hey, fantastic, I've scored a job. And I opened the second letter, it was an invitation to join the uh, you know, the Queensland Police Service. And I threw the tax office letter out and you know, I was uh, very, very excited to join the, the Oxley Police Academy uh, uh, about two weeks later. So, yeah, very, very exciting. So that training, how did you find the training? Is it, is it Are there years that you look back at fondly? Personal experiences, I wasn't fantastic at school. It wasn't until I went to policing and took up that vocation that I found something that I was very, very good at. What were your experiences like in terms of the training and understanding the, the legislation, knowing that, you know, the Office of Constable is an incredibly complicated one, almost training to be a lawyer sometimes? Yeah, it's a good point. Let me answer that in two parts. Uh, one, uh, a funny anecdote, and secondly, how I tackled that. Um, so week one, and it was a shock. It was an, you know, an induction into some of the hardness uh, that sat in that policing culture and discipline as you would have experienced at the time. But um, mm. uh, after the initial couple of days inductions, we got straight into some traffic enforcement work. And so the sergeant who took that particular uh, uh, module uh, marched us out to the car park and uh, got us to do a defect inspection on our own cars. 
So, you know, we're all very diligent. <laughs> we're all very diligent and uh, you know, going about it, you know, with, with vigour and gusto and, you know, riding up bull tyres and, you know, not working indicators. And, you know, I proudly presented that to the sergeant and he literally had a valid traffic infringement notice book with him. He said, thanks very much. Here's your ticket. Go pay it. Oh. Every single one of us, you know, in our enthusiasm to defect around a car, got infringed and had to pay the fine. Wow, what a what a start! <laughs> that was the first induction. But um, yeah, to your point, uh, the legislative stuff was heavy going. Um, but I tackled that like the way I did it. Um, most of my academic stuff at school, um, I wasn't particularly interested in uh, academic study. It's not the way I ever learned and still don't learn. So I was blessed with the fortune of having a, um, a very, very good short-term memory. So I'd spend weekends and nights just memorising the legislation and I'd regurgitate it. I'd scored the highest scores on a lot of the uh, the, the examinations that we had monthly um, and just basically re- reiterated it verbatim. And some of those definitions still sit in my head today because they're just mm. constantly sort of regurgitate. So, look, I, I was uh, lucky that I had that memory and I ended up as ducks of the, the my particular intake, uh, which was nice, but you know, it didn't prepare me for what I was about to face on the street. There was no correlation between spinning out legislation and what you actually had to do on the street. One of the significant differences between uh, UK policing and Australian policing is... Uh, the amount of skills that you are given or tools or accoutrements that you're given upon graduation. Queensland police officers and police officers right across Australia are armed from the day that they graduate. And as well, they have the capability and the capacity to drive. Talking about those experiences, the, the, the ability to get behind the wheel of a car, police car from the day you graduate and to be armed uh, to the point of being able to challenge somebody with a firearm. What were those sort of pressures like in your head, in terms of were you used to firearms, or is it something that concerns you, or just just another tool in your armory to be able to deal with problematic situations? You know, I look at that through two lenses. Um, at the time, uh, I took it all in my stride. You tend to be a little bit more malleable in your mind when you're younger, and I was younger. I was, as I say, 21. Uh, thought I knew it all, but um, to me, it was um, something that was inherent in policing i accepted it for what it was um i felt it was a tool of the trade which comforted me you know i put my hand up to work in the roughest part of then brisbane which was fortitude valley uh, and i felt appropriately equipped and i felt i was appropriately trained uh, to use those accoutrements when i look back now at 57 years of age and i think about a young man being given you know the option to use lethal force uh, in total independence and isolation because my first couple of months were on the beat. I had no partner. I was walking around by myself um, lethally armed. And, you know, I thought that was a significant responsibility now when I look back. But at the time, it seemed very, very normal to me. And you move on to a good point, Fortitude Valley. It still has an essence of quite an intense policing environment. It is a very... Uh high-stress public order environment in terms of a high level of nightclubs, night precincts there. Uh, I've worked there myself. Uh, There's quite a high level of homeless population with the environment. Talk us through policing Fortitude Valley in the 1980s, prostitution, organised crime, outlaw motorcycle gangs. What was all that like? 
You're right. Um, I was up in the valley last week, actually walking through um, with my 16-year-old daughter. We'd gone out for dinner and I pointed out to her that it was a very vibrant and dynamic precinct, and it still is. It's, as you say, now an epicentre of uh, of entertainment and nightclubs, but it's a very different vibe. Uh, it's, a, it's a much younger, much more dynamic, uh, much more um, socially socioeconomically higher strata of attendance back then as you say uh it was it was a suburb which i uh in policing parlance called the weeping sores of cities you know they are the places that are in a city but they're run down and it was a pretty rough place but i knew that because i spent a bit of time there before i joined the cops and i really liked the vibe so i put my hand up to go there which is quite a surprise because um i don't know what it was like when you went through ollie but uh when we were at the academy we in the last month, we were given the option to list three preferences of locations where we'd like to serve. And I only put one, which is the valley, and no one ever put their hand up to go to the valley. But, you know, that, <laughs> I, uh, I got I got my preference, funnily enough. Uh, and I, I loved it. I, you know, I, I really loved the grit and the dirt of the street. Um, and I tell this story relatively often that um, there is nowhere else where you could have learnt that street tradecraft as a cop faster and better and deep more deeply than Fortitude Valley. It, it was a wild place. I was very lucky to come up as a pace recruit. So I came up with that previous experience from South Australia. And um, I put down Surface Paradise as my primary station, which is the Gold Coast version of the valley. It's an intense policing environment, Friday, Saturdays, nights. Uh, it becomes policing becomes... Excuse the description of contact sport because equally there are a lot of people out. There are a lot of arrests being made. There's a lot of antisocial behavior and it becomes a very difficult environment and you learn your trade quickly. I want to, I suppose, ask the important question is, as you said quite rightly, is that academy life is quite significantly different in terms of what you face in reality when you graduate and go through those gates at Oxley to your the area you're serving in, Fortitude Valley, Service Paradise, wherever the case may be. At what point did you realise that policing was going to offer some significant challenges? There was any particular moment in those early years you look back and went, crikey, this job is going to be tough at some stage? I think it was in those formative few weeks, Ollie, um, in the Valley. Uh, you know, you, you, I, I remember striding out on the 6th of June, 1986, which is my sort of first day at work, and it was an evening shift, and my role was to take up a post actually i wasn't even allowed to walk around at that stage but i'd been given a corner position and my instructions were to go up there so i wandered up and um yeah back in the day again this is it's a long time ago now but we were given commissioners instructions two very thick volumes of of uh instructions on how to perform your duties and i remember thinking Oh, there was something in there about walking by the left two and a half miles an hour. And I was trying to calculate whether I was walking too fast because I was pretty keen to get up to the corner. But anyway, um, you know, I, that that sort of sense of everything being very structured and disciplined and you get sort of a very um, uh, sequential decision-making process at each situation pretty much went out the window in my first contact with actual reality. Um, yeah, there was... There were, prostitutes fighting in the street, there were bouncers throwing uh, people out of nightclubs. Um, you know, as you said, uh, organised crime uh, was pretty evident uh, and open and overt on the streets. A lot of uh, what they call underground casinos, but they weren't particularly underground. They were very, very obvious. And, um, you know, as a young constable who knew the law 
but not the tradecraft, I was struggling to work out where do I where do I turn my attention to because crime was everywhere. It's and you know, the period of the late nineteen eighties for the Queensland Police Service, just to give our listeners around the world some context. It's probably one of the darkest periods in Queensland Police's history in terms of the Fitzgerald Inquiry, an inquiry which was um, led by Tony Fitzgerald, Queen's Council at the time, uh, led on allegations of corruptions which resulted in uh, the arrest and imprisonment of the Commissioner at the time, uh, Terry Lewis, and the dismissal of three ministers. Tonight we're coming to you from Brisbane where we'll be devoting our entire program to this uh, weighty document, the long-awaited report of the Fitzgerald Inquiry into Corruption. The crooked policemen who betrayed the force and betrayed the community, they have no reason to breathe any sighs of relief tonight or sleep easier tonight. They're not out of the woods yet. Mr Fitzgerald's almost sanitised report was designed that way. As a young constable working in the Queensland Police Service, that must have been not only a really challenging time to understand, well, crikey, what's this organisation I've come into? What's the values? What's the culture? And and ultimately really kind of challenged morale. What was that period of policing like? And for those of us that are unfamiliar with Fitzgerald Inquiry, if you could give us a bit of a, a breakdown as to what it all meant. Yeah, thanks, Ollie. And uh, look, I, I look back at it as a, a very profound learning experience for me, uh, both as a cop and as a human being. Um, it was pretty evident to me uh, whilst I was relatively young, I was pretty street smart and savvy. And I worked out pretty much in the first couple of months of being there that something wasn't right. Um, what I knew retrospectively and not at the time was that the valley was the epicenter of that corruption. Uh, you know, the, 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 the presence of um, illegal brothels and uh, gaming and organised crime um, really made it a honeypot for uh, police corruption. But as I was walking the beat, I was very, very close to the street. Um, you, you know, you, it's, you get a very tactile sense of what's going on in the area, uh, much more than in a patrol car or, or uh, in a response arrangement. Um, and I saw, you know, uh, uh, lots of gaming going on, which wasn't being policed, and I couldn't understand why. I knew it wasn't my role because I was a beat officer, and you know my role was to keep the street calm and preserve Her Majesty's peace, as they uh, they said in our swearing in. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew there were specialist units, um, detectives and vice squad and ga gaming squad that were meant to deal with these things, and clearly they weren't. And I, I couldn't figure out in my own mind why isn't this being policed. You know, I know this is all illegal because I've learnt the legislation. Um, and I then spent a bit more time observing these activities because I was interested in what was going on. And I would see people who I suspected were police, uh, you know, the, the, the standard polyester short sleeve shirts and, you know, the thin leather ties that they had at the time, you know, the, the giveaway signs. Um, and you know, soon, sooner rather than later, I started piecing together that these people, in fact, were plainclothes police, and I'd started pegging them to certain um, stations and units. Um, and it looked to me initially, I'd given some benefit of the doubt that they were engaged in that um, you know, that consorting squad practice where they go and speak to the um, to the girls and the brothels and the madams and the you know the people of operating licensed premises, but it started looking far too familiar for me. It's far too friendly. It was um, you know they, they were there for hours. They'd be 
drinking alcohol. Um, I'd go around the back and I'd look through the windows and they'd be up there, the shirts undone. So, you know, I, I figured out pretty quickly what was going on. It was uh, they were partaking in social activities um, and they weren't policing that at all. Um, the problem with that, though, Ollie, was that whilst I, it didn't overly um, concern me existentially from a career perspective because I just got on doing what I wanted to do, which was policing, and I was concerned about those activities, clearly, uh, but what really started to worry me when when there were attempts to drag me into that. And they were very subtle at first. Um, you know, come have a drink, uh, you know, come talk to the girls. I said, no, 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 I've got, you know, I've got policing to do. I'll just come after come after after hours, after duty. I said, no, I'm not going to turn up in a uniform in a brothel. It just, you know, it was anathema to my, my thinking. And I thought that was okay. I thought that was going to be accepted and I'd be left alone to get on to do what I wanted to do. But you know, you started then getting this, um, and you, you might have experienced this, if you're not part of that culture, you start being alienated mm. um, because uh, they don't trust you. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's issue where you, if you're, if you're not participating, then why aren't you participating? Are you either someone from internal investigations as we had at the time or someone that, you know, is, is reporting that behavior to, um, somewhere in the hierarchy or to internal investigations. And I started getting that um, uh, that that interaction with colleagues who were saying, hey, mate, you just want to start getting involved here because if you don't, you know, you're going to be calling for help on your radio and there's no one going to be turning up. Um, you might That's want to think tough. about that. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I was going through this sort of very um, uh, uh, traumatic time not not so much I wasn't I wasn't stressed about it but from a professional career perspective you know I joined the cops to to be a cop um so I thought well okay I'm, I'm in a little bit of strife here I've got a couple of options either you know join the giggle as they called at the time which I had no appetite to do whatsoever um I uh kept going and did what I was doing but knowing I was running the risk of um not just alienating myself, but getting myself into some real trouble um, out on the street, even from my own colleagues, or I'd try and get a transfer out um, because it was just going to get too hot. What happened, though, to answer your question, I'll finish on this point, um, is that unbeknownst to me, there was a, uh, a couple of investigative journalists, uh, one in particular uh, by the name of Chris Masters, who had been conducting a... a, a a campaign of investigative journalism starting to unearth um, unhealthy relationships between organised crime and police in the Queensland Police Force at the time. And I was at home on a Monday night watching Four Corners, um, which is a documentary series here in Australia. Uh, at that stage, at that time, focused heavily on investigative journalism and this particular episode was called The Moonlight State. And it was an expose of police corruption in Fortitude Valley. Now, I almost fell off my chair because you know, I watched images of precincts and buildings and individuals that I knew intimately from walking the beat every single day. And uh, to your listeners, um, that documentary was the trigger to a Royal Commission of Inquiry into Police Corruption known as the Fitzgerald Inquiry. 
And that inquiry cut a swathe through the corrupt system uh, that existed in the Queensland Police Service at the time and made its way all the way up to the top of the, the tree in the commissioner, Terry Lewis, who for many, many years had orchestrated a system of corruption where payment was taken from uh, brothel operators and uh, illegal casino operators to al- allow them to keep operating. It's um, it's interesting because I, I read up on Chris Masters, you know, Chris Masters, and he even got su- assigned an Australian federal police officer to look after him whilst he was carrying out the research for that particular documentary. So it was quite an intense period in policing history for for Queensland uh, with a number of recommendations made and obviously a lot of people held accountable for some very nefarious behaviour. But you moved into um, detective work and more investigative policing. Was that, was your experiences during that period in Fortitude Valley, is that what kind of led you to move into that area of work in terms of that more investigative work that, you know, to move away from that, that frontline general duties policing where you were exposed to that, 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 that conduct? What was, what prompted the move into the more detailed investigative work? Well, Ollie, I'd been um, working the vans as they called it colloquially at the time for about nine months. Uh, essentially you get assigned a, uh, we call it you know, the drunks van or the divvy wagon, but um, you get assigned a, uh, a van and permanent night shift and you'd have a task to clean up the streets of the valley. Um, and it got so bad, so gritty that we dispensed with the normal trousers and uniform shirt and uh, wore police overalls. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was our, the cotton shirts would get ripped in every brawl we went to. We'd be plastered with blood and you know, other human uh excrement, excrement and, and yeah. Room, yeah every single night so um that was a great nine months i learned a lot and um you know i enjoyed it but it it was a grind um so i i wanted to do something different and um one of the local sergeants was running a plain clothes squad not a detective unit but a plain clothes squad to um you yeah. know most police listeners would understand this, but to do some plainclothes work on the street, you tend to be um, discreet or covert. You tend to see a lot more because people in that milieu are quite alert to uniform police. So you start mingling in plainclothes, you learn a lot more. So I, I really enjoyed that work, Ollie, the, the plainclothes, which sort of gave me an insight into um, more investigative work because you tend to do more sort of investigative work. And I really like the, um, the, the detective's work. So I, I had set myself to become a detective and back then there were certain conditions to be met to get your detective's designation you had to certain uh, do three years of plainclothes work you had to tick off a whole number of different offenses uh, up to and including indictable offenses so rape and homicide and then you submit your uh, your application to a panel and they decide whether you're good enough to be designated a detec- detective so that was something I really enjoyed and set my mind to were there any particular cases that you led on or oversaw as the often described here in the UK as the senior investigating officer? Any particular cases that you undertook or led on which demonstrated to you that you had the skills, the capabilities and you got the respect from your colleagues that you were a, a really good detective on the way up? Yeah, I was very active, um, you know, a little bit over the top, I think. When I look back, I'd pretty much lock every everyone up for anything that sort of came across my desk because you know, I was just keen and eager. And, um, <laughs> I, I, I tempered a bit 
in in the sort of latter parts of my detective work because um, you know I ended up I ended up in uh, uh, the magistrates or the district court giving evidence. I remember a period of time where I uh, appeared on uh, eighteen different cases, nineteen days in a row in in a court, um, and I thought I need to slow down. This is this is silly. Um, but look, a couple of uh, a couple of ones stand out. Um, I did a lot of uh, what they call night wireless work, which is the 10 p.m. 6 a.m. detective shift. Uh, essentially, you're the only car, you and your partner, are the only car that's on in the broader Brisbane metro area to respond to any serious indictable offences that the uniforms came across. So you know, if there was a murder or a rape or a, a grievous bodily harm, that call out the branch, the criminal investigation branch or the CIB, and we'd attend those. And um, I, I really enjoyed those 10p to 6a shifts, not so much from a um, a physical perspective as they were tough going, but um, you really cut your teeth on um, some high-end offences and did a couple of homicides, which were quite gruesome during that time, but uh, really, really enjoyed that period. How did you manage in the in the 15 years that you did with the QPS and the large majority of those in the detective capacity, how did you deal and manage and overcome uh, exposure to trauma and often violent and unexplained death? Because that's often one of the greatest skills that I think police officers evolve into. It's not something that you know you've got until you're exposed to it because there's often that fight or flight you know, uh, response. How did you navigate that? It's a great question. Um, I'd like to call it compartmentalization. Um, others might call it suppression. I don't know. Um, and, you know, I've been in policing a long time. I had been in policing a long time and I saw a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, which manifested later in um, police officers' lives as a result of either a single incident or a cumulative set of stresses. Um I'm still waiting for my PTSD to hit, to hit Ollie, but um, you might recall uh, in your training, uh, there is some exposure to um, uh, dead bodies. Uh, yeah, we did uh, morgue and were subject to watching a post-mortem. Um, I remember some of my recruit colleagues didn't deal with that quite well. Um, and it was quite a, uh, a, a tactile experience. Um, I understand now it's done a little bit more clinically behind a glass wall, but back then you're basically crowding around a table where they're cutting open a body. So, you know, that was sort of the first real exposure I had to, um, to, to that type of visual trauma. But working in the valley and on the street, you get to see it um, up close and uh, you're right. You know, I, I, I watched um, a guy bleed out um, I tried to stop it. He got cut in the neck. Um, juggler vein was severed in a street fight with a broken bottle. And um, yeah, I remember trying to to save him with the ambos, but it was futile. He's um, he, he bled out in a couple of minutes. Um, and I spent a lot of time in um, in morgues and um, in 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 situations where there were. Um, fresh crime scenes where people had been killed or had committed suicide or had been run over or had jumped in front of a train. And I reflected on that because I was quite self-aware um, and I was trying to work out, well, why wasn't this affecting me in the way it should? Why wasn't I staying up um, after the end of a shift and you know, self-medicating and trying to work through 
a uh, what should have been quite quite traumatic, at least from a visual perspective. Um, and I realised that uh, I was compartmentalising. I was just um, accepting it that this was part of part and parcel of policing. Um, it was something that only a chosen set of people uh, put their hand up to do, and uh, I needed to do it well because I was serving the public. Um, and I was able to justify that and, and I was able to compartmentalise it. And I, I reflect back now and think of all of the traumatic events that not just in that period, but I spent a fair bit of time in a, in a tactical squad where uh, you're not just seeing violence, but you're inflicting it um, on people. And um, I, I know that I've been exposed to significant trauma of that nature over the course of 30 odd years. Um, and as I say, uh, almost flippantly, I don't mean to be uh, flippant about it, but um, if anyone were to get post-traumatic stress or disorder, I should, I, I just haven't had it yet. But on the other hand, and this is a, 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 um, a demonstration that people just are very different. You know, I've seen police officers who have suffered severe PTSD uh, from a single event, which against the backdrop of what I've just described, um, you could describe as mediocre, but um, you know, individuals deal with it differently. It's it's incredibly interesting because um, when I was at Surface Paradise, sadly, one of the common issues or the two most common issues that we would deal with when we would come across this, uh, these traumatic scenes as either people that had decided to uh, commit suicide and jump off a high-rise building or, you know, we have people drown within the, you know, the Gold Coast beaches because of the, the heavy currents and dangerous waters, et cetera, et cetera. And as a shift supervisor, when you're managing and looking after people, it's one of the greatest challenges is to try and help and guide them through those particular situations because each one of us responds differently. But that leads me on to my, my next particular question. During a lot of this period, you would have had a young family, you've been married, and I've often said that the unsung heroes that stand behind us in, and allow us to do our policing to the best of our ability and give us the opportunity to still have a productive home life are the wives, the children that we have sitting behind us who give us that fantastic support mechanism. What was that support like for you? Did family worry for you? Were you able to actively kind of debrief, as I did often to my partner? You know, you debrief and you, you tell them some of the things that you can to the point you think that they can take as to what you were going through. Yeah, it's a great uh, question, Ollie. Um, in my eight, last eight years of um, policing in the Queensland Police Service, at least, um, I was in a covert role, um, and that included a a range of things. I uh, did a lot of surveillance, um, ransom informants, did some undercover infiltrations uh, myself. And um, I spent a lot of time away from home and I looked very different. I, um, you know, I have some photographs of very long hair that were past my shoulders and you know, full beard and a couple of gold earrings hanging in each, each ear. I looked very, very different. Um, I was involved in some fairly heavy um, undercover infiltrations, uh, Italian organised crime, outlaw motorcycle gangs. And, you know, I'd come home after a couple of weeks and uh, as much as I tried to clean myself up, um, my children were scared of me as I walked in the door. <laughs> they were young young kids and they were like, who, who is this man coming through the what's door? What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> what's what's <laughs> mum done? Um, <laughs> uh but it was always a comfort to come home uh, to them. And uh, I tell this story that, um, you know, after coming home after a particularly violent uh, siege, 
which was resolved through um, some uh, a kinetic effect, uh, as it is known euphemistically. Um, and it was, you know, there was quite searing uh, experience. And you come home at three or four in the morning, and things are very, very calm. And and you, and I go into my children's room, and they're sleeping peacefully. Uh, and you think, this is the reason I'm actually doing the job I'm doing to make the community safer, but also safer for my family. So I drew a lot of um, inspiration and solace and comfort. Um, and and justification for what I was doing in those wee hours of the morning when I'd come home and just see you know, my children and my family sleeping peacefully. Um, in terms of debriefing, um, I was a little bit more circumspect, I have to say. I didn't want to transfer that trauma, even vicariously through me to uh, my family. So I, I kept a lot of what I saw and heard and felt uh, within. Um, yes, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd share a story or so, but I, I'd normally share the ones that were more amusing or more interesting as opposed to the ones that were graphic. You're listening to part one of my chat with former Australian Border Force Commissioner Roman Quadflig. In episode two, Roman and I talk about his covert operations tackling outlaw motorcycle gangs whilst he was working undercover. In this episode, Roman recalls the moment he had a gun pulled on him in Outback Australia after he was suspected of being undercover. Got to a spot, pulled up, grabbed me, tied me to a tree, took a gun out, put it to my head. This and much more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the A 